Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for taking time to join us. If you have a hunting dog, you probably know the training supply business called Gun Dog Supply. Its co-owner is Steve Snell, and he's Dr. Dale's guest this month. Steve is also a board member of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. What a great way to learn about technologies useful in the bird dog world. Let's join Dr. Dale, Dr. Brad Kabeca, now with their special guest. Well, thank you, Gary. And again, uh, good to hear from you and look forward to being back in the studio with you at some point in time. We're here in uh, mid-August, taping this on the 18th of August, and we've still had some awfully hot weather, but we have had a little bit of respite here in many areas of Texas, uh, South Texas especially, earlier this week got anywhere from four to seven or eight inches, and that ought to be a real quail maker for them. In addition to our special guest, Steve Snell, this morning, we also have Dr. Kabecker sitting in with us. Again, uh, you've heard from Dr. Brad a couple of times, and he's our new executive director at the Research Ranch. So, Brad, I'm actually going to start off with you this morning, and, and I know you've been up at the ranch a couple of days this week, so give us a, a little bit of an update on, on how things look up at the Quail Research Ranch. Well, thanks for having me on again, Dr. Rollins. Uh, I used to have a saying that uh, I have a face made for radio, and then after listening to myself on the last podcast, uh, I started thinking to myself, I better brush up on my writing skills. <laughs> but uh, things things are looking um, okay. I would say uh, not as bad as one might expect. And uh, we have a little over two inches in the forecast over this this coming week, and I'm hoping that might stimulate some late nesting. We found a nest this past week, and that would be uh, for whenever listeners are listening to this, uh, mid-August or so. So that was hopeful. But most of the birds that we're seeing, though, are, are in coveys or, or large broods already. Um, not seeing a whole bunch of pairs, but that uh, that rain in the forecast and that cool weather and uh, that late nest is uh, is hopeful. So we're hoping that will manifest into something um, pretty good for this fall. Brad, real quickly, contrast the Rolling Plains with South Texas. Again, they got a real quail maker rain down in South Texas. Talk to me just a minute about the length of the nesting season between those two regions. Yeah, our, our nesting season length in the Rolling Plains is notably shorter than really most of the stronghold quail bobwhite populations in the United States, um, that in particular being South Texas and, and the Albany region, uh, the Red Hills region of North Florida. But in South Texas, they have milder temperatures that, that last and in, later into the year. Um, the main thing that's driving that, that nesting season length is, is the photo period or the length of the day. But also there's other cues that those birds are cueing in on like temperature and heat and, and things of that nature. And those just tend to be a little more mild and in South Texas, or can be more mild, um, and same thing with the Albany region of South Georgia, um, North Florida. So, uh, all, if over the last 12 years at the Research Ranch, uh, our average nesting season length has only been about 75 days. In comparison, there was a study that came out um, a couple weeks ago at the National Quail Symposium by some of our colleagues at Tall Timbers, and their average nesting season length in the Albany region over the last 30 years was 134 days. Um, makes sense, you know, it, we get cold fast, we stay cold longer, um, so it's a shorter time in which they can get everything done. So a little different life history kind of strategy and and how they, they operate. We, we see similar patterns in, in Bob White and other parts of the geographic range and um, Indiana and historically Wisconsin, Kansas, all, all that stuff. So uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting how how they kind of have to nest and and they're they're whereas in the other parts of the range we might see bimodal nesting where we have one big hatch and then another smaller hatch towards the end of nesting season in the rolling plains it's kind of uh they're they're going as fast as they can as as long as they can so it's it's not so much um two big pushes it might be one big push 
Well, we typically make or break our quail season in West Texas with a June hatch, and obviously that is behind us. But I'm seeing videos and getting reports from listeners on our Facebook post, our Facebook page, excuse me, and people sending in some short videos of cubbies they've seen. So almost miraculously, given the heat and the dry weather, that we've pulled off any at all. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. And again, the forecast uh, is promising for us over the next week. So we'll hope indeed that, that pans out. Let's move on to our special guest. I met him in 2008. I'd heard about him and his business long before then, and I bet you have too. If you've got a bird dog or really any kind of hunting dog, chances are you've heard of Gun Dog Supply. And our speaker today is the president of Gun Dog Supply, Mr. Steve Snell. Steve, welcome aboard. And if you will, give us your little elevator speech about where you're at and how you got there. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, we're a family-run hunting dog supply business. We uh, we started in uh, 1972. My parents started the company at their dining room table, and uh, we've been family-owned. Uh, this is actually our 50th year, and we are primarily a mail-order company. We uh, we went on the internet in '96, late '96, early '97, and uh, before that, we had pretty much become a retail location. We were based uh, just north of Jackson, Mississippi. And the majority of our business at that time was mail order. I'm sorry, the majority of the business at that time was retail. We, we sold dog food and, you know, dog supplies, but it was more of a, of a, of a pet type shop without the pets. Um, and then in 96, we went online um, trying to recapture some of the mail order business that we had had earlier than that. And within, um, about a year, it got out of hand, you know, to the point, um, it was very early in the internet and it took off, uh, to the point that I had to stop what I was doing and come back in to help my parents. Uh, my brother was already involved with it. Um, he was the one that, that he did our internet development back then and, uh, had built their website and was handling that. And it reached a point where they just couldn't keep up with it anymore. And so in 98, I stopped what I was doing with a couple other companies that my brother and I owned and uh, came back in to do this and pretty much haven't stopped. Um, you know, that's that's pretty much my been, been my focus since then. Um, I've actually slightly changed roles. Um, I'm still probably listed as president, but uh, but I'm doing some different things right now. And uh, my brother's actually overseeing the majority of the day to day operations of the company right now. So uh, um, I'm, I'm getting to play a little bit more and uh, spending most of my time in product development and content development. Yeah, product development and testing means you get to spend a lot of time out in the field. And, well, that's, uh, that, that, that depends on how you look at that, Dr. Rowan. I mean, <laughs> you know, this stuff doesn't test itself. That's true. Yes. And I've always appreciated Steve and Gundog Supply from your customer service standpoint. And, I, and I'm not the only one. I talk with other people that... Uh, that you and I both know and hunt with. And maybe it's just because we hunt with you. I don't know. But I, I, I get the sense that you give that same level of individual touch to just about anybody that has a question or a concern about product. Thank you. That's that's the goal. Um, very little of what we sell, we have exclusive. Uh, you know, the majority of the stuff that we sell, you can buy from anybody. And so really customer service uh speed of delivery and and you know how you handle uh, you know on the front end as far as orders that's that's part of what you can handle um we tend to try and compete with the likes of amazon and chewy as far as uh, speed of processing um you know most of my customers when they order it they needed it yesterday and so getting things you know put together and out the door fast is something that we've always tried to do but customer service is a is a key part of it. Uh, product knowledge, you know, I really think of us as being a, you know, we're in the product knowledge business and we're in the customer service business. We're really that's really what we do, and it's more important that that you have the opportunity to to speak to somebody or to be able to find information on our website as far as what we sell and whether or not it's going to fix a problem for you or not, because that's really what people are looking for. And so uh, we spend a lot of time on that. I've uh, shared a quail lease or two with Steve since about 2015 or 14, somewhere along in there. And I, 15? 16. 16, well, yeah, at, at the very height then. Mm. But uh, I promise you folks, there's no one you'd rather have on your quail lease 
than Steve Snell because you come in at the end of the day, if you've had any problems with your electronic uh, location collar or whatever, you're proud to see Steve walk in from feeding his dogs because there's, there's three collars here and we're all concerned about why we're not getting this done or that done. And I can promise you his first question will be is, what, Steve? Have you updated your software? <laughs> Absolutely. And all of us look at each other like, what does that nope. mean? <laughs> well, anyway. yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the GPS systems are a little more complicated than people realize. It's uh, it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot going on there with the GPS system. I got to know you much better. I think it was the 2015 or 16 Quail Masters class. Yes, sir. It was 15. 15. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Quail Masters is an intensive series of four three-day workshops scattered across the state where we try to create what we call students of quail. And Steve joined us in the 2015 for those four sessions, and I got to know him much better then. And I believe he even passed in flying colors as a result of that. So uh, again, I, I guess I'd ask you, Steve, we just finished session three of the 2022 Quail Masters class. And I'd just be curious to know what your critique was of your participation in that class. I I absolutely loved it. Um, I I think it might be misnamed a little bit um, from the standpoint that I think you you realize how little you know after you've taken the class. Um, you know, people people seem to think that it's it's easy. Um, the complexity of, of what you're dealing with to be successful, you know, with any any wildlife is, you know, there's so much that goes into it. Um, but quail have a tendency to be a little bit more complex, I think, than, you know, than some species. Um, so it's one of those things that you you graduate from quail masters, but you realize that you, you know, you just really have just scratched the surface of, of, of what you, uh, you know, what you need to know. Well, and, and that's really one of our goals is sure. for the students to appreciate complexity and to admit that they don't know everything. And, and we prove that to them on a regular basis as to, uh, the, the instructors as well. You know, I've been doing this for over 50 years. And I tell people when I walk to the lectern, after being introduced as an expert on quail, I'm always saying under my breath, there's a whole lot I don't understand about quail, sure. but, but I'm still in learning mode. Uh, Steve, you started something this year that I, I admire you for, and that was your blog. Uh, I, I don't think you've been able to live up to it on a daily basis. You might have lost a little steam, but uh, it's still very interesting reading. So tell us about that and uh, and how listeners maybe uh, would be able to access that. It, it, it's been a challenge. I My original goal was to write every day. Um, I have not met that. Uh, we made it pretty hard into May before it, it kind of started to unwind on me a little bit. Um, I started back up again pretty hard in August. Uh, and I've, I've got a bunch of other content things that are going on that have sort of taken precedent, precedent over over it, which is, uh, which is, I guess is a good excuse. But uh, right now, it's everything's really available on my Facebook page. Um, we're moving all of that over to my blog, which is stevesnell.com. And it's mainly just a collection of, of uh, just thoughts and, uh, you know, it, it, it covers mainly quail and bird dogs, but, uh, but I do some business stuff and I do, you know, I, I, I go outside of those bounds every once in a while. Um, but it's, it's primarily bird dogs. Well, I've really enjoyed reading it and I, I see the comments from other Facebook friends and, and they do too. So, uh, if you haven't, uh, picked up on some of Steve's blogs, I'd encourage you to. And so you can you also go to stevesnail.com, you said, for the website? There's, yeah, it's not all there, um, but there's there's a lot is hosted there. And then the rest of it's on my Facebook, um, which is public. You can access it. And it's just, you search for Steve Snell. It'll it'll come up on Facebook. And we're in the process of moving everything to uh, to the blog. Now, Dr. Kubetschke, don't be shy. Just uh, jump in here <laughs> whenever you see that there's an opportunity you want to add something to. Uh, Steve, again, to many of us, you live uh, a pretty keen life, uh, probably hunt. Well, I'm going to ask you about how many days a year do you spend with your dogs in the field? Uh, I My goal is always 100. Um, I don't hit that every year. It, it, it depends. And that's that's typically hunting days. Um, that's that's the goal. Um, it usually starts 
um, you know, September and goes into March now. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that my wife comments on it when we first started dating, you know, quail season started in on Thanksgiving and went to the end of February, you know, and now I seem to have spread it from, you know, from September one to, you know, the middle of March. Well, you must have an understanding wife and, uh, about this time of year, she's starting to get ready for me to leave. <laughs> All right. Um, again, give us an idea. So here, let's say starting September 1. Sure. Just give, give us a rough idea of what your schedule looks like between that then and early March. Um, you know, it depends. And, and it, it can vary. Um, like last year, the heat and the drought from, you know, from everywhere. I, I have hunted. Uh, Canada, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. Um, and that's kind of the route, depending on what's going on. Um, I haven't hunted Canada in a while, um, and COVID didn't help that any. Um, but, uh, you know, we've been in Montana a good bit. Um, I've been in Nebraska a good bit. Um, haven't done the Dakotas in a while, but, uh, probably going to do that this year. So a lot of it just depends on, um, what the weather's like and what the rainfall has been. You know, we try to, we try to stay flexible. Um, you know, you came up, what was it three years? Was it 2020 when you came up to Nebraska? I believe that's correct. Yes. And so that was a, that was a really off year and it was a, uh, a combination of, weather and uh lack of scouting you know i was on a and and you know uh there was a couple of combinations as to why that happened as a general rule i don't you know if i'm if i'm scouting a new area i like to do that on my own you know from the standpoint that it can go bad really fast um i think one of the things that that people miss out on especially in that part of the world is that you know depending on uh rainfall you can have grazing and emergency haying um and so areas that that you know an area can change from one year to the next drastically and so you have to have a lot of options uh when you're going up you know to that part of the world because something that has been great for years you know you can get there in september and it looks like a golf course because you know there's a drought going on and they've taken the crp and they've you know put in you know emergency grazing um and it's just you know it's just kind of the name of the game and so uh so hunting in that part of the world is is something that's uh it takes a lot of time a lot of scouting um a lot of just local knowledge that takes years to develop well as you mentioned i made the trip up there in 2000 i think it's october it was 2020, 2020 uh, with with our mutual friend steve sherrod from san angelo here and we enjoyed the trip I was in the sand hills of western Nebraska out towards Panhandle. Beautiful country. That's that's the first time I'd spent any time in that. And so we didn't come back with very full game bags, but I came back with a lot of memories and some oh, sure. beautiful, beautiful country out there. And of course, as we get older, that's probably more important to us than how heavy our, our game bag was that day. Of all the places that, that you do hunt and you have hunted, can you list a favorite? And, and you don't, have to, you don't have to be obsequious and count out to us here at Rolling Plains. No. What, what do you um, think is your favorite? Montana is something that that you have to experience. Uh, pictures do not do it justice. Um, so that's that's just kind of one of those things uh, that that I really think everyone has to see. Um, but if you said to me, okay, you can only hunt one species, one location the rest of your life. Um, it's going to be, you know, extreme West Texas blue quail. Outstanding. Yes. And we've shared some good times out there. And again, it's, it's pretty hard country right now, but they have gotten a little bit of rain. So probably not this year, but maybe next year we'll be back chasing blue quail out in West Texas. Uh, Steve, you live in uh, Starkville, Mississippi, down at Mississippi yeah. State. And I know through an old colleague, Wes Berger, down there and also mark uh mark smith i believe uh, that's mark, mcconnell mark, mark mcconnell i'm sorry mark uh they had they've, they're celebrating some recent quail restoration and successes in mississippi and i think you've been involved in some of those so give us a scoop on that so it's uh i you know i grew up hunting wild quail in mississippi 
um, my father actually apologized to me sometime in the mid eighties for getting me involved with it and getting me hooked on something that was quickly disappearing. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was obsessed with it and it was, uh, you know, bird dogs and, and quail. I, I don't remember a time in my life when it wasn't, you know, everything. Um, but around the late seventies, early eighties, you know, our numbers had, had, had declined drastically and were getting worse. Um, and in the mid eighties, we really bottomed out from the standpoint that burning, um, there, there were some lawsuits over some burning and, uh, smoke on the highways. And, um, we hunted, I grew up hunting timber ground, um, uh, cutovers for timber companies. And so, uh, a good cutover was good for three to five years, depending on how bad the soil was. Um, but they would cut it and then they would burn it and then they would plant it. And so, you know, and the quail thrived in it. Um, but they stopped burning it and they went to a chemical treatment. And almost overnight, you know, it was one of those things where if we found one covey, you know, in a hard day of hunting, we had accomplished something. And it's hard to keep a bird dog doing that. So, um, we, you know, we started hunting away from the state after that, but I was always interested in trying, you know, to do something. And there's been a lot of hit and miss. Um, there were some successes in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but it, it, it started to fade away. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that, that we have the opposite problem of what most of the West deals with in that rainfall is never a problem. Um, you know, we average 52 to 55 inches of rain a year. Um, and so, you know, keep in mind that that's an average, you know, sometimes, um, two years ago, I think we were, we, we hit 90. Ooh. Yeah. And so, you know, the problem with a, with a, a species that, you know, that requires a lot of, you know, the soil being turned over, um, you you've got a fight on your hands, you know, in this part of the world. Um, you know, if you take a piece of ground and you don't mess with it for five years, it's a jungle, you know, you cannot get through it. You, you might as well go ahead and get a bulldozer. And so, um, it requires an enormous amount of soil disturbance, um, fire. And, uh, you know, so it's a, it, it's a challenge in this part of the world to, to have people commit to that. Um, and turkey hunting and deer hunting took a, you know, a rise when, when quail numbers went down, everybody kind of shifted to that as, as quail numbers were going down, deer numbers and turkey numbers were going up. And so typically you don't meet a lot of quail hunters, you know, in this part of the world, or if you do their, uh, they either travel or they do, you know, put and take, you know, uh, liberated early release birds, however you want to, you know, there's a lot of different, a lot of different options, but they're not a lot of opportunities for wild quail. Um, but it's not that they can't be, and it's not that they're not here. Um, they're here. They just, you know, they just live in a different, um, you know, they, they have, they have changed as the, as the land use has changed. And so, uh, so we have birds. It's just that, you know, you have to do things for them to get them to thrive. And, uh, if you do those things, you can be wildly successful. Um, Dr. McConnell is back now, uh, Dr. Berger was part of a quail program that Mississippi state had. And, uh, I'm not sure the exact points in it where it, it kind of dwindled away and became less of a focus. And in just the last couple of years, um, there's been a, there's been a turnaround on that. And Dr. McConnell was actually brought in to, uh, you know, to revive the quail program at Mississippi state. And so we have a push going on now and, uh, quail forever's got some, uh, some folks that are here now and they're doing some stuff. Um, so, so there's, there's opportunity. Um, it's just as much as anything, it's, it's educating folks. Um, and, you know, and it's an expensive, it's expensive and it takes a long time to get things, you know, where you want them. Um, but, uh, but we're seeing some success. Well, good. And Brad, I know that, uh, again, you got your PhD down at the university of Georgia and affiliated with tall timbers and you brought some of that interest and ability back to East Texas. So quickly tell us about what you're doing in East Texas. Yeah, it, you know, it's a small world, really. Uh, Dr. McConnell did his PhD at the University of Georgia and, and through Tall Timbers as well. And, uh, you know, Steve hit on some some main things that really are pervasive across the southeast. And it's it's the loss of um, a culture 
not just the bird dog culture, but the culture of prescribed fire. And that, that is absolutely essential for um, quail populations in the Southeast. We're, we're burning every other, other year. And so uh, a couple of years ago, yeah, we, we, uh, we established a new satellite project through Tall Timbers in East Texas called the Western Piney Woods Quail Program. And, and the goals ultimately are to restore quail populations to a region that has quite frankly been neglected for a long time. But uh, within that, the, some major objectives are going to be putting fire on the ground and restoring that culture of prescribed fire and, and developing those opportunities for folks. And uh, it's definitely an uphill battle, but it, it's worth one, uh, <laughs> worth one fighting. And uh, I think that there is a big push and people are starting to recognize, uh, Steve uh, mentioned Quail Forever and, and, and Mississippi State and, and you know, Forest Service and, and a lot of different partners working together on this to put fire back on the landscape and to destigmatize fire and thinning and that early successional habitat for quail. Uh, because really when we manage for quail, there's in the southeast all those other things that some we sometimes talk about rcws or red cockaded woodpeckers really if we make quail that focal species all those other things um come come along with that I, i've seen areas that were managed specifically for red cockaded woodpeckers but didn't have quail but i've seen a lot of places that were managed specifically for quail and and rcws did great so it, it's about restoring that culture and it takes a long time. And so having these programs like the one that they're building back at Mississippi State and these our program at Tall Timbers now in East Texas that are um, endowed or or in it for the long haul are extremely important because building that habitat takes time and everything takes time. So a long term commitment to those areas and, and that those communities is really important. Good deal. We wish the best on both of those efforts. Steve, let's bring us back to Texas. Okay. And let me ask you, you hunt mostly or exclusively the rolling plains in West Texas? So I have hunted South Texas a few times, uh, mainly the Fal Furious area. Um, but I have never had a lease in South Texas and it's never been my primary focus. Um, we started hunting in the Childress area, in the Panhandle, um, in 90, oh goodness, I'm going to say 92, 93, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and I was up there for a long time. Um, we had leases and we would day lease. And uh, 2003, um, I started hunting more where I spend most of my time now, which is more around the I-20 uh, corridor between, you know, uh, Abilene to Odessa. Um, and I've primarily been down there. I had a lease last year that was more up in that, uh, in, in that Childress area, but, uh, but I don't know if I'm going to follow up with it or not. So, uh, um, so most of my experience is in, you know, in that, that West Texas part, Rolling Plains. Well, again, that's that's where you and I have uh, shared the most footprints at, for sure, chasing Bob Whites and Blues, and been fortunate to have hit it again in that 2015-16 time frame, which personally, I've never seen it any better than what it was right there, and that's what we're all hoping for is uh, uh, rejuvenation of something to that, and, and again, when we get out of this La Nina drought cycle like we've been in really the last three years or so, I got to be confident that, that we will see good times again. We'll see cotton rats and we'll see at least 20 coveys a day. And I'm sure you remember this. during those good times, we were seeing 40 or more coveys a day. And so, yeah, we, we, we've seen the other side and we look forward to seeing it again. Um, ha, again, you know, things, things, excuse me, Brad, things have been really tough the last three years. Have they strained your optimism? about West Texas and the Rolling Plains, Steve, or? or no, um, my philosophy has always been, or I guess my experience has always been that, that I'm going to say it's about a 10 year cycle where you have out of a 10 year period, you're going to have two great years, you know, two good years, and then six years where it's hit or miss and it can be terrible um or it can be you know okay um rick snipes gave me the 
you know, his response to quail is the, there's not enough quail, there's enough quail, and there's more than enough quail. And so I try to, I try to base it off of that. Um, there was a time period when I used 10 cubbies a day as my number, where I would say, okay, if, if I can move 10 cubbies in a day, then that's, you know, that's, that's worth the drive. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that I haven't, you know, done the 14 hour drive for less um, and knowing that it's going to be less. Um, but there's very few places where you could find, you know, that many birds, you know, a bad year in, in Texas, you know, for quail is a great year almost anywhere else. And so, um, so no, uh, I'm just realistic about it. Brad, you were going to have a comment? You yeah, you, um, we mentioned weather earlier and uh, and all that stuff and how that really suppresses populations. And and Steve and I hunted together last year, and uh, the weather was poor. Abundance wasn't great, but not only was it the bird abundance not great, but that really dry winter, it affected our hunt success. And I think oh, yeah. Steve can attest to that. Steve was a research associate that day, and we were working dogs and uh part of a hunting um, research project that we have going on at the ranch and looking what percentage of coveys were found on our hunts. And we didn't find too many coveys that day, maybe, maybe five or six. Five. Um, yeah, we, uh, but there's a lot that we didn't see. We probably missed about half was it or something. And uh, uh, there know, are some that we walked right past. I, I think, and, and that was a humbling experience. And I don't know if y'all talked about how y'all are doing that right now, but the, the, the basic of it is that uh, we're hunting random locations on the, on the ranch. So on the research ranch, uh, we don't get to cherry pick where we hunt. It's a, it's a random so that, uh, so that we have to hunt, you know, the, the, areas that have less birds and the areas that have more birds, you don't get to cherry pick where you get to hunt. And then uh, we bring along a tech who is radio tracking the birds. So uh, after you get through hunting, you know, around or pasture, then he tells you how many birds you missed or where, and, and even tells you where they are and tells you how close you got to them. And then you can even look on the GPS later and see where your dogs went and see where the birds were. And uh, it'll make you appreciate um, how hard it is to actually find them. Yeah. And one thing I really love about that exercise is some folks, they see how uh, how they miss their dogs. And the more they see that they miss, the angrier they get. But you and I, you and I both, uh, we had a couple and and we stopped and we said, what happened there? Because we hate to think like we missed a covey because we're directing the dog another way and it's our fault sure. as opposed to just sending conditions uh, most half the coveys uh, just in summary half the coveys we never even encountered within our hunt courses last year and then half of those that we did see we only pointed and shot 18 percent. we had a lot of wild flushes um just either not not getting on them and just the sending conditions were terrible but uh, there, there's so many things in which that weather was compounding our hunt success, not only in bird numbers, but it was really hard for the dogs to smell them. And, you know, right, right when they were, by the time they smelled them, they were right on the, um, the birds and we were having pretty high rates of wild flushes. I think it's a, it's a really neat, um, and it, it is definitely, it, it's definitely one of those things where, um, you have to approach it mentally from the, from the side of, okay, great. If, if my dogs and I have, um, right now I have a crew of what I consider to be good dogs. I don't really have anybody. I got one or two that might, you know, edge into, you know, really talented, but overall I've got a, I've got a good crew of dogs. And if they're only finding a third of the birds that are out there, that means that there are a lot more birds out there than I'm seeing. And so that means we'll have more birds moving forward. And so, uh, so that, that, that's been the way that I've always looked at it. Um, and I think that that number's held up over time. There've been some other, some other uh, studies that have shown that, that, that wild birds, especially birds that have been pressured at all, you know, have the ability to evade hunters better than people realize. Yeah, I tip the hat to Clay Sisson, uh, now with Tall Timber, but for many years with the Albany Quail Project. He did some of that similar kind of work. Um, 
as I recall, you you saw about half the birds were, that were there, but you only got a shot at about a third of them, something to that effect. So, again, good work, and uh, we'll be continuing to look forward to collecting more data points on that. Steve, we just got back with our quail masters class from a, a ranch up in the Panhandle that uh, has a very uh, prominent name in, in quail management in Texas for sure. And uh, I don't remember if we made Mr. Pickens's ranch when you were in the class or not, but uh, one of the Mr. Pickens who passed away a couple years ago, but he's his legacy lives on forever. And he made the quote that he didn't realize he was rich until he found out he was feeding 40 bird dogs. Now that brings me to you. Are you rich? How many bird dogs are you feeding? Well, I'm not rich, um, but I'm feeding, I'm feeding 15 right now. Um, but let me say I'm feeding 15 dogs. They're not all bird dogs yet. Um, I have, I have a very, I have a young crew um, that I'm, that I'm feeding. My, my current hunting string is eight dogs. And every time I've seen you with your dog truck, that's what you have is, is basically eight dogs with you. Uh, would you point to one over your career as saying he or she was absolutely my best dog? And what's your most indelible memory of that dog and a point or whatever? I know you've had uh, lots of them. So I grew up, my dad, when I was a kid, my dad had pointers and setters. Um, the earliest dogs that I remember were setters. Um, and uh, he got Britney's in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, my first bird dog was a Britney. And uh, she, was, she was a really talented dog. She was one of those once in a lifetime you know, type of dogs. Um, but I've been fortunate. I've had two of them. Um, I, so, so we had Britney's, he was a Britney guy. I wanted pointers for a long period of time. And, uh, he bought, he went on a dog buying trip. Oh, this was probably 97, 98, somewhere in that neighborhood and came back with an English pointer named M. And, uh, she was about a 40 pound black and white female. Um, that was a field trial washout. And the first year that we hunted with her, um, she spent most of the time where she was just gone. She was just running huge. And at the time we thought that she was running deer. Um, cause she would just be gone. Uh, couldn't find her. And we, we were running beepers at the time and, but, but you couldn't keep up with her. And, uh, we ended up moving to telemetry collars for tracking dogs, you know, a year after we had her. So her second season with us, we moved to telemetry, which if, if you haven't used telemetry, it, it predates GPS. And uh, it was more used, you know, you know, it's the same, it's the exact same technology we're using to track birds. It's just a, you know, a different, a different collar. Um, it sends a radio signal. It's not as accurate as, um, as GPS or uh, that's not right. It's, it requires more skill to locate than, than GPS does. But, uh, but it had a, a point indicator on it where you could tell if a dog was running or if it was standing still. And come to find out, she wasn't chasing deer. She was going until she could find, you know, she was running until she found birds. And uh, it was not uncommon for her to, uh, you know, several times I would have to walk a mile to get to her, you know, when she was, you know, on point. Um, and I judge every dog, I judge every dog that I see you know, based off of her. Um, she was just that kind of, uh, that kind of dog. I think the most impressive thing that I ever saw her do, and there's a long list, but, uh, she would memorize cubby locations. And so, you know, if you got her to a spot and she'd hunted it before, she knew where they were and she would go to them. And it used to just infuriate my father because we'd stop at a point and he'd want to hunt the North side of this piece of property. But if she knew there was a cubby on the South side, she'd just run straight to him. And so, you know, it was one of those things where she was the dog that you turned out and you just followed her right. and she would take you to him. And so, uh, so, you know, uh, you talking, you were talking earlier about, uh, 16, you know, 2015, 16 and, uh, and 17 just being the, the phenomenal years, but, uh, 2006 to 2008 was another one of those time periods, um, especially on blues. And I was hunting South of Midland, uh, and, you know, we were finding, you know, to find 30 cubbies in a day was, was normal of blues. And, uh, you know, she so many times, you know, she would work a cubby over 
And she was one of those dogs that knew how to handle blues. You know, running birds didn't bother her at all. So, but I'm a, I'm an English pointer guy now. Yeah. I do have one of those shaggy dogs of yours. <laughs> yeah, and I notice he gets enough press time with you too. Well, he's very pretty. His name's Cowboy, and he is gorgeous, and uh, and a very talented bird dog. Um, he is he is probably number two on my string right now. I'm going to pick up the pace here a little bit, Steve, but I got quite a few questions to ask you. When you're on the road, what kind or or anytime, what kind of dog food? If you don't mind talking about a brand of dog food, what dog food do you feed? I feed uh, Perina Pro Plan Performance, and that seems for a long time. And that seems to be pretty common to most among most professional bird dog people, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's it's one of the it's one of the top brands out there, and and I've had a lot of success with it. Um, it's uh, it's it's all dog foods are getting really expensive right now, and it, it has turned into a really expensive dog food. Um, but uh, but that's kind of what's going on right now. Um, but I've I've had really good success with it over the years, and and I'm a fan, um, especially um, you know Perina does a really good job of supporting the industry um, and the the field trial side of it. I am not a field trialer, haven't for a long time. I did it when I was a kid, but but they put a lot of money into that side of it, and field trialing is an important part of the the genetics of pointing dogs, and so that's important to me, and they do a really good job of supporting that. And obviously your dogs make a lot of miles with you. So basically that, that box on the back of your truck is their home. Yes. But for a lot of people that don't get to travel that much, and maybe they've taken a dog from their house or from their kennel at Fort Worth and they carry it out there to crane and the dog's appetite just goes to pop. What do you do? What would be your suggestion when they won't eat their regular dog food? What do you do? Um, you know, I'll, I'll supplement a little bit. Um, depending on the dog, um, you know, you want to be careful about that from the standpoint that, that you can throw a dog off pretty hard. Um, there's some products that are out there for those types of dogs. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll supplement with canned food. Um, you know, I, I, I try to be consistent about it. Um, but I also don't worry too, too much. Um, I have certain dogs that, um, you know, dogs tend to fall into two categories. Um, there's the dogs that no matter how much food you put out in front of them, they're going to knock the bottom of the bowl out. They're going to eat everything that you, you, you know, you, you give them. Um, and then there are the dogs that are only going to eat what they want, what they need and changes in their environment are going to throw them off. And so I like to monitor that, um, of the, the eight that I have right now, I have two that are typically an issue in that, you know, they're, they're not as likely to, to knock the bottom of the bowl out. Um, there's going to be food left over. Um, and so I tend to free feed them uh, where I'll, I'll leave food with them, um, you know, if they're not eating. But I just monitor it more than anything else. Um, and the other thing I, I like I said, I try not to um, I try not to experiment too much on the road. But uh, like a quick go to for me would be like hard boiled eggs. That's a great dog food as far as if you look at if you look at just the overall percentages. And so if I have a dog that, that backs off their food a little bit, then, you know, I'll keep some hard boiled eggs with me and I'll, I'll use that supplement. Um, but you just got to be careful because you'll throw a dog off. You know, so many things can change on the road. Uh, you know, you're changing water on them. You're changing where they live. You're, you're putting a lot of pressure on them. Uh, there's a lot of physical exertion. And so you really just have to be careful about it. And I don't have time to go into it right now, but I know on your blog and on your Facebook post, you talk quite a bit about the 4th of July and uh, fire, firecrackers and dogs. Uh, I yeah. don't have time to get enough off into that today, but uh, I think be careful is the main thing. Let's well, talk the, about something. Oh, well, the, the biggest thing is puppies, you know, uh, and, and I don't have to go too deep into it. But the, the, the thing about noise conditioning is that you don't experiment with dogs. A lot of people will take them to a gun range or they will, you know, they'll experiment, to see if they're gun shy. And that's not how dogs are, you know, developed. Um, there's 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 a lot to it, but it's easy. To, it's easy to screw up. And we just passed the opening day of dove season on September 1. And I think people make a lot of mistakes by taking young dogs that are not experienced or conditioned to the dove field because typically yes. there's just too much shooting. I've seen some dogs emotionally affected. Let's get into some of the technology and especially uh, let's let's start with the e-collars, I guess, right. Steve. And I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about 
uh, particular products or not, I'll leave that up to you. But uh, give us your ideas on, not, I mean, I think we know the use of e-collars. Uh, which recommendations? What are some do's and don'ts? Um, so same thing there. Um, I, I've seen people occasionally that will, they'll buy, you know, an e-collar, um, you know, right before hunting season and put it on a dog and experiment, you know, with that dog. Um, and that's not what they're designed for. Um, now, you know, nowadays we have tracking systems, which, uh, primarily I'm a Garmin guy. Um, there's some other brands out there, um, and we sell everything, but, uh, but I use Garmin. Um, and so, you know, buying a tracking system to keep up with a dog is a whole different ball game than buying a, you know, an e-collar system. Uh, dogs have to be conditioned to understand, you know, what training collars are and what they do. And, uh, you know, it is a, it is a tool that you use, but you have to learn how to use it. Um, we include training materials and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff available out there as far as learning how to use them. Um, but you know, it's not something that you buy the day before hunting season and strap on a dog. Um, now GPS is a whole different, you know, whole different subject, um, where tracking a dog, you know, the, the, the changes in GPS systems and what we have available now from a bird dog perspective is, is so far from what we used to have that, uh, it, it really just changes the game and you don't meet too many folks, you know, that are, that are serious bird hunters that aren't using them nowadays. You mentioned on your Facebook post uh, not too long ago, Steve, about we are now entering another era of bird, are we, we're, we're finished with an era of bird dogs that have never known anything but GPS. But what do you mean about that? So it just dawned on me, I, I did the math on it and Garmin introduced their first GPS tracking system in about 2007. Um, I want to say the 2007 hunting season was the first time that we had the, the Astro 220 with the DC, uh, DC 20 collars. Um, and so you're looking at about 15 years. And so, you know, 15 year old bird dog is uncommon. Um, if they're around at 15, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're riding on the buggy and they, uh, you know, uh, they, they get to, you know, get out and oversee things, but they're not, you know, they're not running real hard at 15. So pretty much, you know, you have an entire, you know, I mean, every, every pointing dog that's out there nowadays comes from, you know, they, they've, they've had GPS their entire lives. And so, or at least the opportunity for it. And so my question to people was, is how does this change things? Um, and there's positives and there's negatives to it. Um, you know, I wouldn't go back, but my, my question was, you know, are we, you know, are, are we breeding dogs that are not as good as the dogs were generations ago? Because, you know, the ones that the runoff dogs and the outlaws, you know, some of them never made it home. Where nowadays, you know, I've, I've, I'll keep an outlaw on my string, you know, because I can always find them. You know, uh, I don't have anybody right now that's a major problem, but, you know, I'll pick on Cowboy a little bit. He went through a period when he was younger where he would stay and he would work with me and he'd stay in a two to 400 yard range. And then next thing I know, I'd look up and he's, you know, a mile and a half away from me, just running full, you know, full tilt. Um, and, you know, he may not have prior to GPS, you know, he could have gotten lost and I'd never find him. But, you know, as soon as I see what's going on, you know, I have two options. I can go to the truck and go pick him up or I can just let him go and get him when I'm, you know, when it's convenient for me. And some of that depends on where we are and what kind of safety he's in. Um, the other side of it, and I think this is even more fascinating, is that we have dogs now that know no matter how long they're on point, you will eventually show up. And I think that that changes the dog's mindset a little bit as far as, you know, how long they'll hold a bird. Um, now they may not realize what's going on. They, they don't really understand it, but they have confidence in you as the other half of that team that every time they go on point, you show up. And so that to me, it's, it's just, it's just interesting, you know, yeah. just to think about it from that. It's standpoint. amazing how they, they, they know when you put that collar on my dogs, when they, when they get that collar on, they know they're going hunting. Yes. And if they, if they put, if we put the e-collar on, it doesn't matter if it's e-collar or GPS that they don't really tell the difference in my opinion, but it'll turn a center into a saint real fast. But there's something about knowing that that collar means something that um, we're going hunting and, and it's business. <laughs> it's part of the uniform. 
You know, they, yeah. they, they know what the deal is. And, well, uh, yeah. yeah. So I've probably shared with you before, but my, my biggest running dog for the last 10 years was a, a better named Tracer. And I'm convinced that with the GPS collars on, she had the confidence that she could range on out there sure. six, seven, eight hundred yards instead of two fifty. And like you said, that I would find her. So, uh, uh, what would we do without our e collars? And again, Steve is the perfect guy to to help you troubleshoot those at the end of the day's hunt. Um, this was interesting to me, Steve. I remember the conversation one time. I asked you out there on our lease, what percentage of the GPS market is owned for pointing dogs? I think on the high end, it's probably about 25. I'd say it's about 25%. Might be, that might be a little bit high, um, but somewhere in the 20 to 25% range. And that blew me away. I mean, being from being from West Texas, you just think every GPS caller is on a bird dog, but what, what are the major uh, beneficiaries of the GPS in that part? Of, in, in you the know, world? the hound market is is so much larger than, than the bird bird dog market. And it's one of those things that if you're not involved with it, you know, you may not realize it. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't know how much of that you see in, in your part of the world. Um, I'm always amazed that there are any raccoons, you know, in West Texas, you have no trees, you know, I don't, I don't know where they live. Where here, you know, we are covered up with them. And uh, so, so the coon market is gigantic. Um, but it's, it's even bigger than that. You know, you have, uh, you know, you have deer dogs and hog dogs and, and uh, lion dogs, um, you know, and it's just a it's just a gigantic part of the market. And the other side of it, too, is that, you know, your your average bird dog guy is going to have somewhere between one to three dogs. Um, your average hound guy, you know, um, I mean, it's you know, it can go all the way up to, you know, into the 50s very easily. Um, I spoke this summer at a uh, at a fox hunter convention where, uh, you know, I mean, they're dealing with, you know, they're, they're dropping a hundred dogs every time they get out, you know, period. And so, uh, so a little different game. And what about those, the rabbit interesting market? insights. Uh, rabbit market's big squirrel dogs are big, you know, so there's, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, just a lot of other dog sports, um, you know, and they're all real similar. Um, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, if you look back at Garmin, uh, they originally developed it for bird dogs. Um, the guys that were behind it, um, and and you know several of them, uh, you know, they were bird hunters. And that's where the original idea came from. And if you look at the original units, you can see that, you know, um, the original units, you know, and they still do, but they have a covey counter on, you know, where you can, you know, the GPS is set up for you to count coveys. Um, I don't believe that Garmin realized how big the hound market was at the time. And they figured it out pretty fast, but uh, but they did not understand at the time. You know, they thought it was more of a bird dog product. Go ahead, Brad. I, I, I buy all. Oh, I, I buy all my stuff from Gun Dog Supply, and sometimes uh, after you make a purchase or whatever, there's usually a survey, right? And so I'm guessing that you get some of that sure. information and insights from those surveys, and I'm sure that all everything that you just shared maybe comes from some of that, some maybe personal experience. But are there any interesting things? Obviously, the hound market, uh, that's a really interesting um, factoid. But are there any things that um, are really interesting that come of those surveys that, you know, the average person, like the hound market thing, wouldn't know? Um, I, you know, I think I think people would probably be surprised how much business we do. You know, we are gun dog supply. You know, that's that's you know, the original name. And I still tend to think of us as being, you know, I think of it as we're bird dogs and retrievers. That's what I think of, of us as that is no longer the case. I think people would probably be incredibly surprised at how many pet dog, you know, just, just family dogs that we deal with. Um, the net numbers huge. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that we're, we're kind of quality centered. You know, I try to, to, to sell products that are, that are high quality. Um, to me, what is surprising, I guess, would be the number of search and rescue dogs we deal with. Um, there's a lot of that. And that's another GPS market. Um, not as big, but it's a really important one. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, using, they're using GPS. They're using everything that we're using in the hunting area, but they're doing it in a whole different, you know, they're doing grids and they're, you know, they're using the GPS to determine what areas, you know, they've covered. And that's a, that's a fascinating part of it. Um, and I guess the other one, uh, the number of, and I've done this with, 
Dr. Rollins, you and I have done this. Um, I don't know if you and I have done this or not, Brad, but the, the number of falconers that use pointing dogs, um, that's, a, that's a really fascinating market. Well, cool. Briefly, Steve, uh, when somebody calls or emails you and says, which one should I get? Are you comfortable with making a recommendation or, or a, a yeah, but you? the first question I'm going to ask is what are you doing? Um, I, I had somebody, I answered somebody this morning that, that kind of asked me that question of, okay, convince me why I should be using this. You know, and it, I think it was an e-collar argument, but it was more of a, well, convince me why I should continue to use this product or why I should use this product. And I can give you the reasons for me. And I can say, well, this is what I use, or this is, you know, this is how I do it. But the reality of it is that I need to know what you're doing, because that's going to play a role in, you know, what we, you know, what we at least say, okay, well, this is the product I'm going to recommend and here's why, but here are the things that you're going to miss out on. And, you know, uh, Garmin's a prime example of that where I run a 550 plus, which is a, a product that was designed for bird dogs. Um, that is, you know, that's, it's a, it's an e-collar system that has GPS tracking where an alpha 100 or 200 in my opinion, is a GPS system that has e-collar functions. And so, you know, a lot of it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, where with a bird dog guy, the maps are not as important, but with a hound guy, the maps are central to what they're doing. And so, you know, it really just depends. So the first question I'm going to say to you is, okay, what kind of dogs do you have? What are you doing? And that's going to lead me down the path of where we have that conversation. Okay, let's How do you come up with your Steve's picks. So, you know, you have your kind of endorsements on yep. gun dog supply. Um, and if you don't know really what per a person's in the market for, but you have your, your picks on the website, how do you come up with those? Well, I, what I try to do, I try to base it off of, first off, it's based on, okay, these are the products that I use. Um, but then there's a lot of, if you stop and you look at all the picks, you go, well, that can't be the case because, you know, I've got 20 different e-collar recommendations. And so it has to fall into a category of would I use, would or slash could I use this product? And that's typically how something gets a pick um, in that um, just trying to narrow down the field for folks. But then we, we, what we like to do is in the written and the video part of, of the web page, then we like to go, okay, this product is really focused on, you know, this individual or this is the you know, this is the what we, we recommend or this is how we recommend that you use this particular product. So it, a lot of it comes down to that where I go, OK, you know, and if, if you were to come to me and say, hey, well, I'm a bird dog guy. Um, then I'm going to say, OK, well, there's you know two products that I'm going to recommend. And, you know, this one does this and this one does that. And if you buy this one, you're going to miss out on these features, but you're going to get this. And but if you really want those features, then let's go over here and take a look at this. One, you know, and so it's it's really that it's more of a you know, honing in on, you know, what the customer needs. And, I, you know, I'll talk you out of buying something as quickly as I'll talk you into buying something. Um, because it just doesn't benefit me to sell you something that's not going to, you know, that you're not going to be happy with. So it definitely you know, those videos are really helpful too that you've done. Yeah. yeah, we're trying to do more of that. It's a it's a it's a long process. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're beginning to wind down here. Let's let's get out of uh, e-collars, GPS collars, and talk about some hunting apps. Steve, I know you use one, and it's very popular. So uh, it, when I say hunting apps, basically landowner parcels, you know, sure. you don't know talk about. It. So why don't you go into that just briefly? Uh, well, I primarily use Onyx. Um, it, I think, in my opinion, it's the best one that's out there. Um, I used to use it on my GPS units, um, but that's becoming more complicated and and I was never as comfortable with it. Um, if you haven't used their app based version, so it, you know it's on my iPhone. Um, you know to me it's it's possibly one of the the best uh, hunting, not not only just hunting but but uh, just just keeping up with where you're supposed to be. Um, I find it to be to be much handier than than even using a GPS for location. Um, and uh, what I like about it is that there, there's multiple things, but my favorite part about it is that I can mark a, a, you know, a waypoint and I can text it to anybody else that's using Onyx. 
And so if, if Brad and I are talking about something or if I even with a landowner, it comes in great where um, I've got a, I've got a lease where I run across a spot in the fence. That's a problem. You know, I can mark a pin right there and I can send it to my landowner and say, hey, you've got to break in the fence right here. Um, and, you know, especially the guys that have cows, they're running cows. Um, you know, you can make friends real fast if you find a break in the fence and or if they're cows out and you can say, hey, they're cows out. They're right here. And here's how they got out. You know, that's handy. Um, so I'm a big fan of it. Uh, and, you know, not only does it show you out west, it's a big deal because of, of the amount of public land. You know, in Texas, that's not quite as big of a um, especially out in West Texas. There's not quite as much public land. But in you know Montana, I don't know how you'd function in Montana without it. You know, the amount of public land that is not marked clearly in Montana is, you know, pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, you can go from from being fine to being trespassing by taking three steps in the wrong direction. And so having, you know, having the ability to, to look on a on a map that's really well done. Um, and then I've also used I'll tell you the, the other one that I've used that is awesome um, and, and uh, is a hunt stand. And if Onyx doesn't have this, they need to have it. But uh, I was on a lease that had a lot of deer hunting on it and, and it had quail hunters. And the, the hunt stand app has the ability to, I don't know if you can reserve or you can book a blind, but I was able to, first thing in the morning, I could look on the hunt stand app and see where the deer hunters were as far as where their blinds were and what blinds they were hunting. And it allowed me to stay away from them. And uh, that, that's a pretty neat, you know, that's a pretty neat feature. So, uh, um, you know, if you're, if you're hunting somewhere that, that mixes, uh, you know, pointing dogs and deer hunters, that's a neat app. Steve, your business demands that you stay on the cutting edge of this type of technology. And again, you're a field tester for Garmin and, and various other companies like that. Are there anything, are there any things that are coming down the pipe technology wise that you can, at this point in time, you can say, hey, in another year, we're going to do this. Uh, no. And and most of the tech companies keep things pretty, pretty close to the vest. Um, I don't we're through with any new releases. We really haven't had a lot of, of releases this summer. Um, we've got. Yeah, there's one more release coming out in about a month, um, but it's not it's, it's more pet oriented product um, for us. Uh, I will say that there's always work being done. Um, you know, uh, especially Garmin and, and Garmin forces the other companies to, to do some things, which I think are really neat in that, um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the, the, to me, the technology would get stagnant and we would have a product stick around. It wouldn't be improved. Um, you know, Garmin is one of those companies that has a tendency to improve without the need for somebody to push them. Um, and that's, that's something that I like to see. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's, there's new stuff coming, but there's always new stuff coming. Well, Steve, we've talked for an hour. Is there anything that we've left out that you think our, our listeners ought to be aware of? Um, no, you know, I, I, I guess the biggest thing I like to tell folks is just, um, don't prioritize the the bird hunting over the dog in that, you know, they're, they're so important to what we do. And I don't, I, I'll run across people occasionally that, that bird hunt without dogs. And I don't understand that. Um, I would never do it. Um, but, uh, you know, taking care of those dogs and making sure they're in the right shape and making sure that they're, they're physically able to handle the demands. Um, you know, it's a lot and it, it's tough on them. And, uh, you know, stopping and, and, and checking your dogs over and just, just the welfare of, of a hunting dog to me is, is really important. And so, you know, making sure your dogs are, are well taken care of and, and in good physical shape and given what they need to be able to, to perform it the way we expect them to, you know, that's a big deal. How about you, Brad? Got any parting shots for us? Well, you know, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but uh, Steve is on our, our board of directors at the Rolling Plains Quad Research Foundation. I, I just wanted to express our gratitude from the foundation for Steve's um, support um, on the board, but really uh, his being an advocate for quail conservation from West Texas and the Rolling Plains all the way to Mississippi and everything he's been doing. I know he's helping other folks and not just our organization. We talked about Dr. McConnell and he's he's engaged. And so Steve's doing a lot for our cause and we really appreciate that. 
Yeah, I hadn't forgotten that. I was going to add that on my outro, but again, welcome aboard, Steve. <laughs> We're glad to have you. And again, your technologies and the, the products that you sell, especially the GPS scholars, that kind of thing, those artificial knees and Kawasaki mules have extended the life and the pleasure of a lot of quail hunters in West Texas. So we appreciate your contributions to that. Uh, and with that, Gary, we're going to send you back to the studio and you, and we'll look forward to visiting with our with our group next month. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dale. And thank you, Steve and Dr. Quebeca, for the great conversation and insights. Really good information. If you'd like to know more about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and its special work, go to the website, quailresearch.org. Past episodes of the podcast are available on the site, along with details about research projects and the research ranch. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Appreciate you joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.